Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent, and also down the line from Arlington in Virginia, we have Bartlett Naylor, who's in charge of financial policy at Public Citizen, the US campaigning group. Today we'll be looking at Bank of America as it comes under sustained pressure from investors and lobby groups to change the way it manages itself. Secondly, we'll be looking at the new payments regulator in the UK. And finally, back in the US, US living wills. What are the implications of the latest rejection by regulators of three European banks' living wills? The first topic, though, Bank of America, they've been fairly busy in preparation for their annual shareholder meeting. Last week, they accepted a call from shareholders to have a say in the appointment of directors. They also were forced to accept as a proxy vote at this meeting the idea that they might be able to be broken up or there should be a vote on breaking up. Martin, explain exactly what's been going on. So Bank of America has been forced to include in its proxy for its upcoming annual shareholder meeting a proposal to set up a committee to examine a plan for divesting non-core banking businesses, such as Merrill Lynch, its investment banking arm. And this is a proposal that's put forward by Public Citizen, a consumer advocacy group. Bank of America had resisted this proposal quite vociferously, but the SEC, the US regulator, forced the bank to go ahead with putting it on the proxy. So there will be a vote by shareholders. So Bank of America will be forced to make the arguments as to why it shouldn't have to set up a committee to examine a breakup of what is essentially one of the biggest banks in the world. Now, this comes amid continuing debate about the issue of banks being too big to fail, too big to manage, too big to regulate. And JP Morgan, interestingly, last month in a presentation to investors, made a very strong argument as to why it shouldn't be broken up, quantifying the synergies that it achieves, something like $3 billion worth of synergies from having an investment bank together with a commercial bank and a retail bank and having this big complex global structure. Now, it, of course, was responding to a quite spiky analyst note from Goldman Sachs, which was suggesting the very idea of a breakup of JP. Interesting that we've got financial analysts as well as shareholder advocacy groups kind of going in the same direction on this. question is, will anything come of it? Good point, I think, to bring in Bartlett Naylor from Public Citizen, who, as Martin says, proposed this proxy vote. Bartlett, thank you very much for joining us. Just run us through, from your point of view, the arguments for why Bank of America should be broken up. I think that some of the observations that are made by the analyst at Goldman Sachs regarding J.P. Morgan, an analyst Mike Mayo has been calling this for a number of years, that shareholders would benefit 
from breaking up and having Merrill Lynch separate from Bank of America, the insured depository institution. It's more valuable for a number of reasons. While there may be synergies, big is very difficult to manage. Bank of America actually made sort of an embarrassing and large mistake on reporting its bank capital. From a policy perspective, I think America and the world would be better served because these banks, if you will, are too big to fail. Join with that is moral hazard, that is to say, an invitation to take risks beyond what is really appropriate because there would be a taxpayer bailout of the bondholders or the creditors, which account for more than 90% of the funding of Bank of America and the other large banks. And therein is another problem for shareholders, that if the bank basically explodes every 10 or 15 years, it wipes out shareholders. Shareholders lost four-fifths of their value in the six months following the onset of the financial crisis with the bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers on September 15, 2008. So again, I think it's good for shareholders. I think it's good for the broader economy. Now, of course, Bank of America's in its current guise with Merrill Lynch was an entity that was created in the aftermath of that financial crisis. And we saw a lot of other deals, banks getting far bigger as troubled entities got bailed out, if you like, by stronger new parent groups. That said, you do seem to be tapping into a vein of popular opinion and analyst opinion, as I said, in terms of the desire maybe to reverse those strategies. How successful do you think you can be? I think beyond a national debate, and I mean a debate around people that follow this, I think that it runs into a struggle of the mechanics of how these issues are actually voted on. In other words, average people may hold shares directly, but more likely will hold them through mutual funds, Fidelity, Vanguard, BlackRock. They'll be advised by institutions such as institutional shareholder services. And that's a problem with corporate governance generally because there's a conflict of interest between some of these institutional investors and companies because in addition to owning them, they provide services. They provide services like managing retirement accounts in the U.S. law known as 401k accounts and so forth. And it's bad marketing to, if you will, vote against management. So we're running against that problem. If this was what I would call a fair fight, we would do pretty well. But unfortunately, when it comes to corporate governance, we don't have fair contests. So it's predominantly about getting the debate in the public realm, really? I think that's the best and most obvious service, is that we now actually have a chance to talk about whether or not this is a good idea. And I think at least the early commentary that I'm seeing is gratifying and that, that it is a good idea. It makes a lot of sense. You know, John Reed and Sandy Weil put together Travelers Group and Citicorp to make City Group. Those two guys were on the front lines of the world's first mega bank, and they have now decided that was a bad idea. This was too risky, too big to manage, and the that company and all financial institutions that join investment banking and commercial banking should be broken up. Very good. Well, Bartlett Naylor, thank you very much for explaining your, your agenda, and we will watch with interest to see how it fares. Thank you. So we should move on to our second topic, which brings us to the UK. And the UK has a new payments regulator, or at least it will by next week. Martin, this is causing some concern in the city. Yep, the payments systems regulator is going to come into existence on April the 1st and it's already got the banking industry 
lobbying and preemptively trying to put pressure on this new regulator in a couple of areas. In a report that came out today and comments made by the chief executive of the British Bankers Association yesterday ahead of this report that they've produced on digital banking with Accenture, the consultants. They are making two points that I think are directed mainly towards the payments regulator. One is this idea of allowing customers to switch their bank accounts as quickly as they like is dangerous because it could make a run on a bank more likely. So they're suggesting that there be some kind of break mechanism introduced on this switching service so that if above a certain percentage of deposits are switched, then there's a block put on for any more deposits being moved. The second thing, more interestingly, potentially, is that the banking industry is saying it's not a level playing field anymore because of the rise of fintech financial technology companies, non-bank providers of financial services, such as peer-to-peer lenders, such as PayPal, the online payments processor, and Amazon, which the report says is offering trade finance to small companies. And the banks say this is unfair because none of these entities are very heavily regulated, if at all. And the banks, meanwhile, have all these capital and liquidity and funding requirements that are placed on them by regulators, of which the likes of Amazon, peer-to-peer lenders, PayPal, are all free of these constraints. And so that's their argument. And I'm not sure how much weight it'll carry, because I've spoken to some of the people in the regulatory system who, you know, off record say, well, first of all, on the deposits issue, the UK's lifted the amount of deposits that are guaranteed by the Financial Services Compensation Scheme, in other words, guaranteed by the government, up to £85,000. So anybody with deposits of under that amount shouldn't be worried about moving them from one bank to another. And secondly, um, they point out that these technology groups aren't carrying enormous balance sheets that are leveraged 20 to 30 times with huge amounts of debt and aren't capable of blowing up the financial system as a result. So they are not the same kind of risk to the financial system and therefore shouldn't be weighed down with all this regulation just because they're offering a bit of trade finance to small companies. So the outcome is that the payments regulator is going to come into being as a supervisor of an unlevel playing field, as the banks would see it, but one that is unlikely to be levelled anytime soon. Let's move on to our third and final topic of the day. Back in the US, where a couple of regulators have rejected the ideas put forward in living wills by three of Europe's biggest banks. Martin, fill us in on exactly what's happened, and then I'll turn to Caroline for her view. So the Federal Reserve and the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Company, have both rejected the living wills that have been submitted by three of the large foreign banks operating in the US. Now, what this means is back in 2010, the US said all of the major banks in the US had to submit basically resolution plans. What would happen if the bank went bust? How would it be safely wound down in a way that enabled some of its key activities like running a payment system or having deposits, or exposure to derivatives, counterparties, how would it be wound down in a way that didn't cause 
outright panic or stress in the financial system. The idea being, I think, that the holding company at the top of these banks can go bust, but the operations underlying them continue under some kind of administration procedure run by the regulators to keep the essential services going. Well, what's happened was those plans put forward by BNP Paribas, France's biggest bank, and Royal Bank of Scotland and HSBC to the biggest British banks uh, were rejected and they were told to resubmit their homework by the end of the year. And this could eventually be quite serious because ultimately if the banks fail to get to a point where they can convince the regulators in the US they've done enough to be easily wound upable, if you like, it's not really a word, but if they don't get to that point, then the regulator does have the power to start requiring them to dispose of assets to simplify their business model. Because this is what the, the regulators worried about, is they're too complex and too intertwined in the financial system to be wound up safely. Now, just worth making a point that in August last year, 11 of the biggest banks in the US, including some foreign banks like Barclays, all had their living wills rejected. So, so far, nobody's had their living wills accepted by the US. They've all had them rejected. So I think it looks bad for those three banks today, but they're pointing out that they're in good company. And so far, no one's been able to get the answer right in the test posed by the US regulators. But foreign banks failed the stress tests only a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Santander and Deutsche Bank both failed those. The foreign banks are all being forced to set up intermediate holding companies in the US at great expense. And there are numerous investigations by the Department of Justice and the Department of Financial Services, which we learned just this week is investigating Deutsche Bank over LIBOR, the interest rate uh, manipulation scandal. So there are plenty of headaches for foreign banks in the US. And I think some of them may be starting to question whether it's worth the candle. Yeah. Well, let me bring Caroline in at that point. So, Caroline, the US isn't the only economy that's requiring banks that operate there to put in place living wills. It's going on all around the world. Yes, that's very much the case. Living wills were one of the key flagship policies to come out of the financial crisis as policymakers tried to tackle the too-big-to-fail question. So we see various initiatives at uh, domestic, then EU and also global level that banks are having to grapple with. Resolution and recovery regimes are their official title. So you've also got regulators at the moment trying to work out whether these living wills should also apply to other types of financial services firms beyond banking, such as clearing houses are the big ones at the moment that are also probably going to have to come up with their own living wills. So how exactly does the US process compare with other comparable ones around the world? And to what extent is there coordination? I think the US, as in many other walks of life, is a lot more down the path of rigorously testing these models than is the case over here. So very much in the United States, it's a pass or fail question, whereas the PRA certainly in this country tries to have a bit more of an organic conversation with the banks as part of its general supervisory conversation. Certainly with the ongoing work that the PRA is doing with UK banks around ring fencing, resolution regimes will definitely be looked at. And I think certainly in Europe, there is also ongoing work that's being done with the industry as to how exactly they might wind down their bits of businesses should they fail. Very good. Well, we'll keep an eye on uh, that process, particularly the US 
It would be interesting to see when and if they approve their first living will for any bank. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin and Caroline here in the studio and also Bartlett Naylor from the Public Citizen Organization in the US. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.